Hi, and welcome to The Beagle Has Landed. I'm your host, Laura Hersher. I am here today with Alyssa Levin. Alyssa is the Senior Director of Clinical Affairs and Policy at Helix. She is a genetic counselor, and I asked her to come today to sort of uh, talk about the new launch of the Gene Prism test, which I think there's a lot of interest in. Hi, Alyssa. Hi, Laura. Great to actually have a chance to talk to you. Yeah. Alyssa and I have talked quite a bit, not on tape. <laughs> Let's see if I can get her Many to be forthcoming on tape as she is off tape. <laughs> um, so, Alyssa, just to talk about you a little bit, your background is you were a real pioneer in the direct-to-consumer area. Is that fair to say? Um, I... I can't say that's untrue. <laughs> I have been in the consumer space uh, literally since it began back in 2004. Uh, so I guess I started the first clinical uh, support services for the first direct-to-consumer company, DNA Direct, and then the clinical support services um, and many other hats that I wore at Navigenics and others. So now rounding out 15 years later at Helix How and all the work that we're doing. A couple of years? I've been at Helix for over three years now. So oh, the company is about three and a half years old. So I was definitely one of the early comers. Yeah, time flies. Um, so uh, at ACMG last week, you guys announced uh, this new test called Gene Prism. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. So do you want to, I, I think... Um, I think it's an interesting new development, um, both for you guys and where the field in general, the direct-to-consumer testing in general, seems to be going. So, like, walk us through it a little bit. What is Gene Prism, sure. Prism test? Who's it for? So, let me start first by talking about the Gene Prism test, and then I can talk a little bit about how that fits in with Helix and sort of our broader model. But I want to get to the meat of the question first, which is um, Gene Prism Actionable Insights is a product that was launched in partnership with Perkin Elmer Genomics. And I think many of us are incredibly familiar with Madhuri Hedda, who is a leading genetic uh, professional who has been um, – one of the forerunners in offering things like sequencing of the exome for healthy people while she was at Emory. Um, she's incredibly involved in all of the efforts around um, classifying variants for clinical, clinical action. And she, we have been talking with her for a long time about how you continue to bring these types of actionable insights to the broader population. And we were incredibly excited that they were willing to partner with Helix and essentially leverage our sequencing uh, technology. And then they provide the interpretation through which we're able to provide individuals, um, consumers, if you will, with access to their ACMG 59 insights. And obviously we all know that ACMG 59 was created as a model for the responsibility of us as professionals to return um, secondary findings. Um, it was not initially created to launch commercial products, and I think we all understand 
expand that. But we also recognize the fact that there are is so much valuable information buried in these 59 genes that people have incredibly limited access um, to be able to understand, are they carrying one of these variants? And so this partnership really allowed us to leverage their interpretation capabilities with our sequencing and our ability to scale uh, sort of the commercial side of letting people access their genomic data in a secure and private way and getting this, as I like to say, um, clinical grade, um, highly responsible information um, by one of the world leading Okay, okay. I'm, I'm going to just I say. I let you go on for a really long time because <laughs> it's very, very interesting, but not going to let you give that much of an advertisement. Um, so, yep. yeah, so so I do think it's interesting. There are a couple points. One, the use of the word consumers. Um, well, got to come up with some word. They're not patients because they're healthy. Um, mm-hmm. And... Uh, they're they're healthy with no presumption of disease. So patience doesn't feel like quite the right word. I guess I always have a, I mean, I use the phrase direct-to-consumer all the time, but I guess I kind of have a, a little bit of a knee-jerk dislike of, of talking about individuals as consumers, as though that was a good summary of who they are. Um, but okay, for the lack of a better word, yep. direct-to-healthy-individuals I- testing, um, so, and ACMG- if I could, could I actually dig into that a little bit, Laura? Yeah. Just because I think there's a lot of understanding or use of the term direct-to-consumer, and I would love just to have a chance to kind of tease that apart a little bit because, you know, direct-to-consumer, DTC, it's something that we've been talking about for, you know, 10 or 15 years, and the crux of what's behind that is really the idea that there is no healthcare professional Um, or support involved in that process. And I think that there is a difference in terms of how we have rolled out the gene prism test, which is that this is actually facilitated by qualified genetic professionals. Let me ask you Um, you questions about that. Yeah. Because I know on the other end, Mm -hmm. so so on the front end, on the front end of the test, you click a button online, you're interested in this test. Yep. Do you... Do you have an option of involving your own doctor or does it automatically go to doctors with whom you're affiliated? I assume that there's some, because you told me so, that there's some doctor involved Mm -hmm. in the ordering end of this test. That's right. So the way that the Helix model works is that we integrate with third-party services. And for the Gene Prism test, we partner with uh, Genome Medical and so it's the geneticists um, that are involved with Genome Medical that actually review the test request and, and authorize or decline to authorize that test. And the way that that process actually works is when somebody, you know, expresses that they're interested in purchasing, they have to fill out a personal and family history questionnaire that's specific uh, to understanding the person's background with respect to the ACMG 59. And... They answer these questions that a secure API goes to uh, Perkin-Elmer and then Genome Medical. They review that. And if somebody has a significant or a suspicious personal or family history, if they've had genetic testing in the family before, um, anything that would set off a reason for additional questions, that uh, provider then reaches out to the the individual. Um, 
I like to use the word people person, <laughs> um, just to uh, make it a little bit more right. <laughs> personal. So Erica, Erica re- Ramos yeah. and Scott Weissman wrote a, wrote a, yep. a, an editorial in 2018, which I thought was very interesting. Uh, and also very important about the language that the and and I completely agree with the essence of it, which is that the scope of what's available online or out of the clinical situation, out of the traditional clinical setting, has grown so much that the phrase DTC, um, with all the baggage that it carries, really is mm-hmm. inadequate at this point in time to describe the the range of what's out there. Um, you can't put everything into one big bucket and treat it all the same. And they proposed some alternative language, one of which was consumer-initiated testing. Now, again, it's that word consumer, so maybe we'd like to get away from the word consumer. But the point is mm-hmm. it has to do with who initiates it and not whether or not it ends up uh, um, passing through the hands of a medical professional. So this strikes me as a kind of a good example yeah. of the consumer-initiated yeah. test um, that's exactly one right. of the things you mentioned is that um, if the if the person qualifies for a a test uh, that would be covered by insurance, that you're that's supposed to get kicked out as you shouldn't be here. In other words, if they have a family history right. of cancer, you're going to kick them out and say you should go see somebody and get a specialized test for for cancer risk. Is that right? That that is correct in that. We want to empower people to have a choice. So this is intended, I think, getting back to your initial question, who is this test meant for? It is meant for the ostensibly non-indication healthy population. This is bringing broad-scale screening that would not otherwise be available. So in the event that somebody has a significant personal family history of breast cancer that indicates diagnostic testing that's likely to be insurance reimbursed, that is something that the provider from Genome Medical will discuss with that person and un- explain what the limitations of the, the existing test are or additional considerations that they may want to make so that they can make a decision. Do they want to move forward with this test, which is intended to be a screening test for the healthy individual? Or is this something that they want to get directed back into a genetics clinic or to the appropriate right. provider because locally the, the so that they can get the that testing? Because the test 59 that's going to cover things that we have really good certainty about what they mean. So if you test positive, that's right. we're going to be able to give you fairly reliable information about what this means for you, but doesn't have sort of the breadth of testing that a full ca- cancer panel would have, right? That's right. And that's exactly the intention of integrating the genetics professional and then also on the back end, um, providing access to genetic counselors at no additional charge. Whether somebody tests positive or whether somebody tests negative, they have access to a genetic counselor throughout the process at no charge. And that's something that I felt incredibly strongly about. I was brought into Helix in the very early days to set policy and develop these infrastructures. And from day one, the integration of genetic counseling into the workflows that's a click away without creating cost barriers was something that um, I built into our policies from day one. Yeah, so kudos for that. Um, and I'll give you extra <laughs> credit if you tell me that you're going to um, be transparent about the numbers in terms of how many people use it. Because I, I, for one, would be really curious to see 
when you've had this up and running for a year or so, how many people click that button? And, and, and do only people that test positive click that button or do other people as well? Because the, the positive tests, if it follows what we've seen in, the general pop, in other general population situations, you're going to expect about 2%, right? So I think it really depends on the model um, in terms of the workflow that you set up. And what we have decided on with Gina Medical and Perkin Elmer is that for anybody who tests positive, they actually will get proactive outreach from the genetic counselor um, who will engage them. And I think we all know some of the challenges that exist in terms of we can reach out to people and say, hey, do you want to get a free genetic counseling consult? But if somebody doesn't understand what the value of interacting with a genetic counselor is, that doesn't do us any good. So there's language to explain why you might want to talk to a genetic counselor. What are some of the things a genetic counselor could help you with? And that is communicated digitally to that individual. And then there's also follow-up in terms of emails and phone calls um, a couple times to make sure that people you know, have a chance to engage. And if they choose not to engage immediately, they can still schedule a consult at any point that they feel like they need help. Will you make it transparent? Will you make it public? How many people use it? Because, I, like I said, I'd really love to to know those numbers. Will you tell me privately? Yeah, we. <laughs> so, I, I to be clear, I would love to publish these numbers, and I think we're all very interested in publishing these numbers. Um, to be frank, we haven't had a discussion about exactly what that looks like and and how we will do that. But I think we are aligned. And when I say we, I talk about sort of the triumvirate of partnerships between, you know, the, the professional services, the interpretation, um, you know, ownership of Perkin Elmer, and then Helix is sort of this backbone that we all want transparency first. And so while in some cases, the total number of people who've gone through testing, I think that's really up to our partners to decide whether or not they disclose that. Mm-hmm. I think we can absolutely talk about percentages in terms of utilization of services and some of what we're learning. And, and we are going to interact um, on an iterative basis to understand what's the feedback that we are hearing so from people who are facing Let's ask a specific question as an example. Yeah. I'm, I'm sticking with, with cancer, but it, uh, you know, the ACMG mm-hmm. uh, 59 is heavy on cancer and heart disease, so it's, it's, it, you know, it could as easily be that example. Um, if you have somebody who has a family history but decides that they still want to go ahead with this test, um, and so, in other words, you would, do you do you have any um, mechanism to flag somebody for a higher residual risk, and sort of say like the way you would say you're testing positive, you you might want to talk to a genetic counselor. Do you have any mechanism to sort of say, hey, you have a lot of residual risk based on your family history, you might want to talk to a genetic counselor. Yes, and obviously we have the the digital questionnaire that somebody has filled out. So um, all parties, obviously, well, when I say all parties, I should say the Perkin Elmer Gene Prison team has that, as well as the genomedical team. So then, when the test results go through the interpretation and the report is generated, that also goes back to the ordering physician to review and release that report uh, to to the person who ordered the test. And so when that uh, genetic counselor gets on the phone, they can reach out, they can, they can triage that in ways that make sense in terms of addressing any significant residual risk. Mm-hmm. The other piece that I will say is that 
we very much took that into consideration. I haven't actually touched on what the quote-unquote product. I think we don't usually think of genetic tests as products, but in this kind of digital era, we, we tend to use those words somewhat interchangeably in, in my world. Um, we spent a significant amount of time developing the user interface and that reporting structure that facilitates the interpretation and the communication of that information and the return of results to, to someone. And so what that means is we worked with design teams, we worked with, um, with basically development engineers to create a user interface that's intuitive, that has lots of different layers of information, but we also tried to create not too much information so that when you actually log in, can I take you through step-by-step step for a second? Because I think this will help people who are listening kind of understand the way that we're trying to create somewhat of a digital version of what we address um, in a lot of different genetic counseling well, context, let me, contexts. Let me, because for reasons of time, let me, let me ask you a couple questions first. Um, mm-hmm. One is that you use the phrase, as I want to get back there, clinical grade. Um, describing this as clinical grade testing. And that's a phrase we've all started to use more and more, uh, including me. Um, but when pressed, I have trouble defining it. Uh, I noticed that you note that you do confirmation testing. Uh, you guys mm-hmm. are spun out from Illumina. You're working with Perkin Elmer. Like why is it, is it clinical grade? What does it mean to say it's clinical grade? Like, how would you define that? Why would you need confirmation I think when testing? I, mm-hmm. When I think about clinical grade, I think about the quality and the measures that the underlying laboratory and technology have. So we're a CLIACAP facility. Um, we run one single assay, which is the exome plus. So it's a clinical grade exome that has been optimized for the medical exome. And then we also spike in, in an NGS assay, the power of a microarray, so that you have one assay that can essentially tap into a significant or the majority of all variants that you could interpret today in any kind of clinical context. Um, when I think of clinical grade, the idea is this is not intended as a research assay. This compares um, in parallel with other types of diagnostic assays that are out there. Um, in essence, I think of it as diagnostic grade. However, we are intending from a marketing perspective to enable access to the healthy population, right? So there are other diagnostic assays out there um, by other diagnostic laboratories that run orthogonal technologies um, to essentially fill in the gaps of some of what next-gen technologies in, cannot necessarily do on their own. That said, I will also um, highlight the fact that we have an amazing informatics team here that has developed tools to be able to facilitate the disclosure of things like copy number variation and hard-to-do regions like um, some of the pharmacogenetics genes and pseudogenes so that we have actually done clinical validation studies to prove the informatics, you know, kind of annotation layer of everything that we do. Um, to further create a more robust platform that can be used by our partners for interpreting. So, yeah, but you have the information there. The test quality is the same as what you would get, right, if you went for Mm -hmm. um, a test that would be ordered in a clinical setting. Um, Right. what What are you confirming 
if you get a result? Like, why do you say that you send a result for confirmation? Yeah, it's a great question. I think this is actually this is actually more of a kind of emerging philosophical debate. Is that, um, is that, which, is that done for, for, for PR reasons or for FDA reasons? Is that like... This is actually something that is driven by partners. Um, I think there, just to be clear, right, there are a really wide varying set of standards today in terms of diagnostic labs and when next-gen technologies are used, when there's additional Sanger confirmation um, that is triggered. Some labs are no longer using it for, you know, basically single nucleotide variants and small indels, and others are using it for everything. And I think that's where sort of the philosophical debate comes into play. I think the reason that we are offering... I thought thought Sanger confirmation was, was like, you know, rest in peace. Well... Some labs are still going in that direction. And so I think that's where we have this this sort of healthy debate. And I'll be honest, I think Helix is a relatively young company um, compared to some other labs that have been out there for decades um, or for many more years. And they are still trying to understand, you know, how valid are these tests? And we have run, we run validation assays on every, you know, every time we run 5,000 exomes, we, we run analyses and we share those transparently with our partners. And we feel incredibly confident and our partners tend to feel confident about the fact that we, for things like, again, SNVs and small indels, additional confirmation testing is not necessary. And so that in this case, because the ACMG 59 is a, an incredibly, I think, new concept to get out there into the clinical market. Mm-hmm. They are offering confirmation testing at no additional charge mm-hmm. just to make sure that everybody is comfortable that this that the results going back um, are are validated. And I think actually as we go through that process, we're going to show that th- those results are valid and we will gradually move away. I think for CNVs, right, for copy number variations, um, that is something where confirmation testing is probably going to be continue to be recommended, um, even though we have an incredible, incredibly robust tool. Um, I think that's going to continue to be recommended for time to come. Yeah. So, so I'm going to just say I think clinical grade means sort of, uh, uh, but I've never seen it defined anywhere. To me, <laughs> it's like a mm-hmm. personal. Thing. What does it mean to you, to you? It's like uh, to me, it means. That obviously, bottom line, it has to be a CLIA approved lab and so on. You know, it has to have the accreditation saying that the lab work is accurate. It needs to have the involvement of a medical professional judging that the, mm-hmm. the choice of the test was accurate. And uh, it has to be a test that we would use in the clinic, um, meaning that the sort of medical community has deemed it to be yep. a test with significance and utility. And if you put those three things together, I think that counts as clinical grade. So I do think that your test by those criteria does count as clinical grade, which is surprising. So what's surprising to me is when you announced it, the first comparisons that the press was making were to 23andMe's test for, you know, health predispositions, wellness, traits, and carrier status. Um, I don't really see that as a very valid comparison, but I'm going to ask you to speak to that a little bit. Um, where do you, what do you think are the tests that compare to yours and how is it different than the 23andMe test? 
Well, I think uh, you definitely just hit on something that uh, we were equally surprised to be compared <laughs> to, to the 23andMe uh, tests that, that are out there, simply because we, we don't look at, the, at those as comparable um, for a whole host of reasons. Obviously, the underlying technology, the amount of coverage, the clinical quality, the amount of information, the integration of genetic counseling, um, you know, these tests are just night and day. And so when we look at the depth of information, you know, that we are providing, including rare variants on base-by-base -base coverage across every single gene, um, you know, that's radically different than looking for a few founder mutations using genotyping technology. Yeah, so, 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 um, so I've, I've kind of fed you a softball there, right? Because, like, so you're looking at the entirety of BRCA1 and 2, right, for example? Correct. Right. So, Correct. so one of the big complaints that clinical people have about the 23andMe uh, health dis predispositions test is, while I think it's an effective way to look for the three founder mutations and useful to people that find them, we do worry that people think that they're getting this inclusive cancer screen when they may only be tested for uh, a, a small number of, when they are only being tested for a small number of mutations, and the chance that they have a mutation and that it's found is is well well slim. You know, it's like ninety percent mm -hmm. chance that if they have a mutation, it's not found. So you're broader there, right? Like it's not as broad as the cancer Correct. panels. Correct. But if they have a mutation in BRCA one and two that would be found on a cancer panel, I assume they're going to find it on your test. Is that a fair statement? I think that's an absolutely fair statement. So and how does and it again, compare to how does it compare to your more natural com, um, competitors like the uh, what Invite is planning to do and Geisinger, which I notice has an up and coming precision health panel that is being offered on Helix. So, do you have a sense of a comparison between those things? Like, there's a there's there's suddenly a lot in this market, and I'm I'm want to help people understand the difference between them. Yeah, I think the way that we think about it is, again, you have to look at the underlying technology, and then you have to look at the clinical interpretation. Um, and so when we think about all of the different pieces that come together in terms of that test experience, right, how much do you believe, how much are you um, able to tell somebody that the results that they are getting are, are actually valid. And I think that when we look at some of these other types of um, tests that are out there on the market, there are absolutely some great and robust you know, next-gen technologies that are be, being used to interpret this information and give it back to people. Um, I don't know exactly what Invite is going to be rolling out, you know, in their consumer-initiated um, um, test offering but what I can say is that, and again, this is touches back on there's a component of user experience that is absolutely requisite when we're thinking about returning these results directly to people. Um, and number one, again, they have to be supported by professionals. But number two, how easy are you making it for somebody to be able to navigate through and understand what their results mean to them? How do you give them sufficient information in terms of what is this result? What does it mean for me? What are screening guidelines? How do I think about what are the next steps that I need to take? How do I think about sharing this information with my family, with my physician? How do you bridge that gap into clinical integration? There's a lot of different pieces that we have spent an incredible amount of time researching and studying and iterating on to 
distill down to something that is effective, that is useful, and makes people feel supported throughout the process. Um, and that is something that I just haven't seen out there before. I, I've spent a significant portion of my career um, in lots of different contexts, including in different um, academic settings, thinking about how do you create, how do you marry kind of the human touch of we as clinical genetics professionals do along with the capabilities of current technology? And how do you support people in the, in real time in ways that are useful for them? You know, and so I, I think I that is also where, I, I just want to say that is where we also realize the need to emphasize when somebody gets a negative result that, you know, they need to think about personal and family history. They can still speak with a genetic counselor if they're concerned for reasons X, Y, and Z. Um, we iterate continually, even for general population, right? Somebody tests negative, we're going to still tell them what some of the general screening guidelines are because this is an opportunity to educate and it's a public service announcement and integrated into that is still, if you have anything that touches this from a personal or family history perspective, you need to take next steps. You are not at zero risk. And so that is an area where I think we are going to continue um, to learn how that is impacting people. And then we will continue to make it better to make sure that we are hitting the right notes and making sure that people are not falsely reassured. You know, I, I realized as that question came out of my mouth, and I mean, you did great with it, but I realized I did something really mean to, my, to Alyssa here. I did. I did something really, really <laughs> unfriendly, but sort of unintentionally so, which is that I asked you to make a comparison to, to an up-and-coming Geisinger test that's being offered on your own marketplace. So here you are. You're, uh, you're, this is your job. You can't really, I can't really ask you to compare something that your company's offering versus something that your company's hosting, right? Because like, that's a lose-lose proposition for you. So let me ask you, a related question in a completely different way that doesn't invite you to take shots at anybody that you are um, uh, that you are responsible to. I think it's interesting. I get it that you chose to stick with the ACMG fifty nine, and I can see where the negotiation over that would be. Right? Like, like you 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 wanna you have the full exome there. It's there. So it's mm -hmm. a question of what you're choosing to interrogate. It's there. You have it. Mm -hmm. So it's a question of what you're assuming you're choosing to interrogate. And um, you don't yes, want to go it, too narrow because you limit the utility and you don't want to go too mm -hmm. wide because obviously with healthy people, you don't want to mm -hmm. be giving back variants of uncertain significance and so on where the... The, the counseling and explanation burden right. would really go through the roof and in its right. many ways inappropriate. Right. So I get that you need to. And, and, just, in and for clarity, we don't, we don't offer, we don't return BOSs just to get that no, out. No, no, I get that. Clearly. I was sort of saying like that would be <laughs> okay. the far end of like the crazy thing to do and you don't want to be too narrow. So, so you need to pick a space in between. And, mm -hmm. um, and I think there'll be a number of companies, frankly, making that decision. Uh, healthy people, general population, effectively acting as a screen, uh, even though this is not sc screening in the normal sense, it's sort of a, not a public health program, but a private, you know, choice. Um, so you must have been involved in like endless conversations on how narrow to stay. And I've actually been surprised. I remember when ACMG was 57, right, was introduced. Mm -hmm. There's this idea of like, this is a starting plot. This is a starting place. Yep. This will probably change every year. 
it, 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 we may knock some things off, but mostly it's going to grow. And it really hasn't, right? So that was 2000, I think, 13. So um, it's been five, six years. It basically has stayed the same. Um, mm-hmm. which is, is that a little surprising to you? I think it's a little bit surprising to many of us and then in some ways not surprising because there are so many stakeholders that have to come to consensus on, you know, how and where you push the boundaries and how you define actionability. And that obviously is is going to be a continuing debate, debate. And we expect that the numbers will go up, they will go down. But as we've seen in the diagnostic setting, there's a whole range of how many genes people put into actionable panels. And one of the things that we have heard... Yeah. Let me just say, one of the things that we have heard for years from from consumers, from people, from the general population, is that people want information that they can take action on. And so when you're coming from a consumer-initiated standpoint, how do you deliver something that is just beyond reproach, where we know that we are giving people information, where there's something that they can do about it? And that is really where we decided to anchor this, but we also... Um, understand that this number and this particular product, um, the Gene Prism product, will grow over time. And one of the things about that was attractive to work with Helix is, right, we sequence that data, we securely store that for an individual, and they can come back and re-query and unlock new pieces of information, new components of their genetic information over the course of time, either as they're motivated to learn new insights or for a product like this, Gene Prism could choose to re-query and expand this over time. And that's just a matter of unlocking additional information from that person that we already have. You know, I so didn't ask you, I didn't ask you one of the really real, obvious questions, which is how much does Gene yeah. Prism cost? Oh, so Gene Prism is $259. And then if you have not been tested using the Helix platform before, it's $299. So it's essentially $40 um, to get onto the platform, which is, the spit kit, the sequencing, and the storage. Yeah, that's that's got to be a loss leader, right? Well, our model is that people are going to come back, right? It's test once, query often. Right, and right. the idea is that right, you, you're going to have different questions at different points in time, right? As a genetic counselor who's been in this space for ages, that was why I was so attracted to Helix, was that people have different questions over time, and you never know where they're going to start. And whether somebody's starting because... They've got an ancestry test, and then they find out something about their family history, and they want to suddenly get a new test. They can essentially get that data. They can get that insight about their genetic risk for cancer essentially on demand, right? And so that is something that just hasn't ever happened before. Yeah, that, that's, I know that's the, that's the um, unique idea in the Helix model um, that you – underpay to get that exome done. I mean, Mm -hmm. I know the cost has dropped and I know it's like in-house secret exactly what it costs you to do it. I respect that, but I mean, it can't be 40 bucks, right? Um, uh, 40 bucks, you know, postage is 40 bucks sometimes these days. Um, Yeah. I think we've done a lot to optimize and obviously we run at scales that um, some traditional diagnostic labs don't run at that allow us to get some of the cost efficiencies for that sequencing, but again, under the premise that, you know, this is a lifetime engagement with somebody. Yeah. So, um, one last, one last thing I, I, I can't let you go without asking you about. Um, we haven't talked about the FDA at all and regulation. 
Uh, do you feel that the FDA has sort of stepped away from regulating the space? Uh, is, that was the, I interpreted, I feel like there's been an explosion since Scott Gottlieb's letter um, a year or so ago saying that they were going to allow people to do more, really, in the direct-to-consumer world if they were a trusted provider. I've, I know I've paraphrased and simplified that here, but I think that was widely interpreted as being sort of a permission from the government to go ahead and expand this sector of testing. Um, do you take it that way? So let me break that down into a couple of things. I, I do not think that the FDA has stepped away from regulating this sector. I think that they have actually been digging in to try to understand how to regulate this sector. And I think that the model for how we have traditionally done testing um, that has been FDA approved is the extent of validation testing that you need to do for every particular um, variant that might be found um, is untenable when you're talking about looking at exome or genome-wide data. And so I think what they have been focused on in part is trying to partner, um, you know, with industry and with lab partners to understand how do we think about regulating, you know, a, a next-gen assay. Um, that's just something that hasn't been done before, and I think that they've been incredibly thoughtful about how they're approaching that. I think it's an incredibly difficult construct to create. And so I think a lot of that is going on in the background, whereas uh, what most of us see is some of the FDA authorizations for things like the 23andMe test, which if you look from the technological analytical perspective, um, there's an incredible amount of work that goes into looking at those three founder mutations for BRCA and doesn't necessarily allow for doing that type of broad validation, you know, across the entire genes. And so Helix has been working with the FDA, um, you know, since before we actually even announced that we existed as a company. And I think we can be confident in saying that they are not stepping away from regulating this. They, they're just taking their time to be thoughtful. And do you feel like what's a game changer for you versus some of the companies that um, maybe flirt with being in trouble with the FDA is having that, even though it's an in-house situation, having that involvement of a medical professional, that, that that's a game changer? If I understand the question correctly, I, I think that the idea of integrating the genetics professional, um, you know, or the, the medical professional in the workflow is just a virtual mirroring of what goes on in clinical practice in terms of having a medical professional involved both pre-test and post-test. And so I think that that is something that, you know, Helix certainly did not create that or discover that um, we are actually just I'd say benefiting from the fact that there's so much demand out there in the broader marketplace that all of these third-party services have, have emerged over the last few years. And there are some that are doing an incredibly responsible job in, in terms of the workflows they create to support these types of tasks. And some that aren't. So I have one last question about regulation, which I wonder. So you're talking about the efforts you've gone to do this responsibly and so on. Do you worry more as a company, about, um, I don't know, shifts in the wind, political changes or whatever that would lead to stricter FDA regulation? 
making it more difficult for you to operate? Or do you worry more about uh, less DNA regulation that would force you to compete with people who are not being as careful or as thoughtful or, or, um, or as or didn't have the same technical, mm-hmm. you know, like the riffraff. Do you worry more about mm-hmm. having to compete with the riffraff or do you worry more about um, having to get regulated? What's, what's your bigger, what do you spend more time thinking about? Well, I will say, I, I will answer this personally, but I think it reflects the company perspective where we absolutely worry more about the um, under-regulation um, in terms of, you know, if we're competing against companies that, you know, don't have CLIA, don't have any type of, um, you know, analytic validation, are making false claims, what that bridges a little bit over into FTC land. But um, under-regulation, I think, opens the market in a potentially dangerous way. And so I think responsible regulation that is going to facilitate the innovation of the industry, but doing it in a way that is protecting the consumer is absolutely the way to go. Great. So last question, I promise. And we sort of covered this a little bit, but this was my ending spot. And I wanted to get your opinion on it. Uh, I think we need new vocabulary. It's one of my goals for 2019, um, you know, along with like eating better and exercising more, is to come up with new vocabulary for direct-to-consumer tests. Um, you and I, we talked earlier in this interview about people versus consumers versus patients. We talked about consumer-initiated versus direct-to-consumer, blah, 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 blah. If you could pick a term for Gene Prism, what would you call it? Oh, that's a tough one. <laughs> I think I, you know, I, when I say I'm so used to using the term consumer initiated simply because that's usually when we're thinking about a regulatory framework. Mm-hmm. I'm so used to using the word, you know, person um, or maybe in some cases individual um, when I'm thinking about the person who's going through the test and saying, you know, person centric just uh, I don't think really resonates in a way, but individually directed. Um, I think it's just about everybody should be empowered to get their own information when they want it. And I want to make sure that we, the the language that we choose to use and that we land on um, really highlights that without opening that up into ways and areas where it's not being done responsibly. So Yeah, and I find that so I don't I'm DTC, gonna leave I'm gonna leave you DTC on a last lesson. Yeah. DTC is sort of uh, become a loaded phrase. Um I I I yeah. think I think we need we need more more language that is um, yeah. has less history and is less freighted with um anxiety. So that is, as somebody who's been on the other end of, of receiving some of that feedback for many years, uh, I would agree that DTC is a loaded term and doesn't necessarily apply to most of uh, what is going on, especially anything that touches the clinical space these days. Well, if anybody out there has any great suggestions for what we could call these tests, you know, contact me. You can go to Beagle Landed and contact me. I would love to hear it. Maybe I'll read off some suggestions if I get them. So Alyssa, thanks so much. I know it's been a busy week with ACMG and all that, and uh, I appreciate your carving out this time to spend with us. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. And always fun to talk to you, Laura. 
And goodbye to everybody. Please remember, go to Beagle Landed, subscribe, follow me on Twitter, all that jazz. Bye.